It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. The act of grieving is something we all experience to some degree in life. Dealing with the loss of someone we cherish is always a unique and challenging situation, but there are ways that we can come to understand and perhaps even embrace loss. Three-year-old Drew Michael Taylor was taken from his parents suddenly on June 13, 2006, and thus was created the Drew Michael Taylor Foundation. With us today to discuss the topic of grieving, and specifically the foundation, is Marcy Taylor, Vice President of the Drew Michael Taylor Foundation. Thank you for being with us today, Marcy. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, before uh, the intro, you were discussing the multiple offerings the Drew Michael Taylor Foundation has. So why don't you get into that and kind of let us know what the programs provide? Okay. So our mission is to provide grief education and support for children, teens, and adults who are grieving the death of a loved one. And we do that by offering various programs. Our biggest one is Drew's Hope, which is our program for children 18 and under and their family members who are grieving the death of a loved one. In addition to Drew's Hope, we also offer four different adult grief support groups, um, things like substance death, bereaved parents, but we also, and this makes us kind of unique, uh, we offer two different groups that are arts and crafts based. We find arts and crafts just to be a a way to cope with grief. Um, It's a unique way to gather people, form relationships with people Mm -hmm. that have similar interests, and the conversation just flows as we are knitting or quilting or coloring in adult coloring books and things like that. So we have a grief knits group, and our daytime offering is called The Perfect Blend, Coffee Crafting and Conversation. Um, Outside of those formal grief support groups, we do have various community workshops. We have quarterly children's workshops with unique titles like A Frozen Grief Journey, A Pirate's Grief Journey, um, Our Family Tree, The Invisible String. And those we like to use um, children's books as a jumping off point for various activities. But no matter what offering we're providing, what we try to do is educate about grief provide information about different coping styles and activities that go along with that Mm -hmm. so that people leave our groups feeling a bit more stronger, um, a bit more like they can advocate for themselves and what they need as grievers. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's very tailored to the individual need, that what a teenager needs versus what a parent or a grown-up needs are very different. Yes, and especially in our Drew's Hope program, we'll all have dinner together first. But then after dinner, we divide into separate groups for kids and teens, and they're grouped by age, and then the adults are grouped by type of loss. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, people that have lost a spouse are going to gather with other people that have lost a spouse because that commonality is something that they just really need to be able to, to process and talk about. And we think if you can find the right group that works for you, you can better get support, and give support. So nothing that we do is counseling. We don't provide any grief counseling services. There's a lot of great counselors and therapists in our area, um, and we think that's an important part of the grief puzzle, but we provide something different, just a different niche. And again, because people have different needs on their grief journey, Mm -hmm. uh, they just might need to gather with fellow grievers. And that's really our approach. It's a peer-helping-peer approach Mm -hmm. where we gather grievers together, our, one of our mantras is surround yourself with people that get it, 
And that's really what we try to do because only other grievers following a civil, similar path can really understand what you're going through, empathize with you. Uh, they don't judge you. They, you know, they accept where you're at in your grief journey and that's our starting point. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's really beautiful to watch the relationships grow and, and change and, and transform. There's an idea in grief that some people say, well, you know, you need to be resilient. Well, resilience is often defined as getting back to normal. Well, in grief, there's no normal to get back to. Right. Once your loved one's died, that normal is obliterated. It, it's gone. Yeah. And so what we like to do is try to transform into something new and something different through the journey. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if my son died and I couldn't become kinder, wiser, more patient, more giving, you know, then why? What would have been the point of any of it? Mm -hmm. um, and I think so often as grievers, we get caught up in the why. And I think through these groups, we find people with many different whys and they can give us the energy, the courage, the power to seek our own why, because really grief is like a snowflake. Like you said, it's yeah, different it's for everybody. It's very unique. And, and that's why so many people, they want to what we call should on a griever. <laughs> and we say, don't let anybody should on you. Um, what do you, you mean by that? You cannot let people tell you how you should and shouldn't grieve, how you should and shouldn't feel, how long your grief journey should or shouldn't last. Mm -hmm. Grief, like you said, is very individual. You need to find your own path. People can't find it for you, but they want to. And, and I think part of the reason they want to is society wants to fix us as grievers. It's not comfortable to talk about grief. It's not comfortable to talk about death and dying. And I think that's why, you know, the part of our mission that's to provide grief education, the more we understand about grief, then the more compassionate we can be when people are grieving and, and we can help guide them to resources. Um, we can, you know, make suggestions. Hey, here's what worked for me. But at the end of the day, they can't tell you how you should or shouldn't do your grief thing because it's very much your grief journey. Part of what it sounds like you're talking about, you know, there are the people who are directly suffering, but then there are the people outside of that circle that want to help. You use the word want to fix. I, I think the uh, word comes to my mind is, you know, if I knew someone who suffered loss, I'd want to help in some way. Do you offer any kind of counseling for them and how to help guide family members, you know, through grief and what, what to say and what not to say? So we do a lot of different talks at various places, service organizations. I've even done church sermons. And, and a big part of what we do talk about is, what's helpful to say and what's not. Um, our bereaved parents group had a really f fun time, which sounds very odd because it's a group of bereaved parents, but coming up with our own list of what's helpful. But we did call it our should list. You know, what should people do or what shouldn't mm -hmm. they do? Um, but some of the things would be suggestions like, don't call, don't say call me if you need anything. Offer specific things that can be done. Because when you're grieving, you're exhausted. You don't really even know what you need. But you do need to eat at some point, or at least the people coming to visit you might want food available. So when you can, instead of saying, call me if you need anything, I remember after Drew's death, the phone felt like 100 pounds. Yeah. I needed him. Yeah. And nobody could do that for me. But those people who simply showed up to offer their presence, to offer a hug, 
usually to offer actions, not words, was the most helpful. So when they said, here's food or here's soup or, hey, I've weeded the garden for you or, you know, so-and-so will come over and mow your lawn tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we take your daughter and, and go do things with her? And those things were so helpful But a lot of people think they're being helpful when they say, call if you need anything. Mm -hmm. And often when it's actions more than words, that's the most helpful thing people can do. So the the advice there is take specific action. Exactly. And move forward on that. I want to learn about Drew. Tell me about Drew. He was just a beautiful little boy. He was three and a half with a head of golden curls. He loved sports. Um, What sports did he love? He loved football. He loved basketball. He could smash a baseball pretty good. And he was only three. Really? Three? Yeah. He was- (laughs) Some hand-eye coordination. He he really did. And uh, yeah, we thought he'd have a future in some type of athletics. Um, But he was a snuggler, too. Oh, nice. And he loved when I read to him. Um, His favorite books were A Fish Out of Water and Robert the Rose Horse. So we often, when people are pregnant and I want to take a gift along, I I take those sets of favorite books. And Mm -hmm. I say, hey, these were our favorite, and I hope they become, you know, you and your child's favorite because it's just, you know, those are the things you cling to. You Mm -hmm. cling to the... You know, what what he loved to do, um, chicken nuggets at McDonald's just, you know, have a whole new meaning <laughs> because <laughs> he loved chicken nuggets. He loved M&Ms. Um, so, yeah, he was just a beautiful little sweet boy. And, you know, he died when he was three. So they're just everything about him was sweetness and yeah. goodness and yeah. snuggles and love. And it, it's just a beautiful age. Um but it was, you know, it's really hard when you don't get to experience those Anything other birthdays. That, He'd be yeah. 17 now. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, it's tough even going to high school football games sometimes mm-hmm. because I'm looking out at the kids he would have grown up with. And I'm thinking, you know, where would his place mm-hmm. have been here? Um, you know, the homecoming pictures and prom pictures. Social media can be really great, but they can be really, really tough yeah. well, um, watching everybody else grow. But I'm so glad that they can. It's just that bittersweet you know, inside my own heart as a bereaved mom Mm -hmm. that can make things difficult and the triggers sometimes come out of nowhere. When you say the triggers, you know, is is this something that you just have with you for the rest of your life? You know, it comes and it goes. Exactly. Exactly. The rest, you you carry your loved one with you Mm -hmm. the rest of your life. And I think that's where society sort of dupes us into thinking that if you get through the first, all will be well in the world after that. And we find as grievers yeah, the first are really bad, but then the second comes and you're thinking, oh, crap, this is the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my world was rocked when he should have turned 13. Sometimes it's the big milestones yeah. that they're not here for. So what we try to do in our programs is there's a beautiful expression um, from the book Tuesdays with Maury, and it says death ends a life, not a relationship. Hmm. But we're so used to a physical relationship with our loved one that we really don't know how to do that relationship any other way. Mm -hmm. And the grief journey is really figuring out how to continue that relationship. So what we really try to do in our programs is, you know, give grievers that information and those suggestions and those coping skills, and we learn from each other, how do we do this relationship? Mm -hmm. 
So the holidays are coming, for example, and the first year when Drew died, he would have been four, and Christmas was coming, and I really, really, really wanted to shop for a four-year-old little boy. Mm -hmm. So I found a name on the Salvation Army Angel Tree, and I found a kid that was his size that had similar interests to him. So some little boy in this area got a basketball and a football and you know, the size four clothes that Drew never got to uh, grow into. But in my heart, that really helped because I still got to shop, but I was gifting that to someone else. But I was continuing that relationship with my child by paying forward a kindness in his name. And we find that so many of our grievers figure out how to do that in very different ways, but it's really beautiful. And again, it's a positive step forward. We're not staying still. Our life, as much as we thought it ended with our loved one, it doesn't. It keeps moving on. And I have to think that my son would want me to live a great life, right. carrying him with me every step of the way. And that will be till the day I die. Right. After the loss, how did you come to see that there was a need here to be filled? Tell us about that journey. So our daughter was six at the time her three-year-old little brother died. And where my husband and I were very blessed to find a local bereaved parent support group, we couldn't find a similar support program for her. And I remember one day she came home from the playground, well, from school, and she said, I tried to talk about Drew, but my friends changed the subject. And I thought, yeah, where does she get to talk about her brother? You know, so many people, when a child dies, they focus even especially on the mom. Sometimes even the dad is, you know, left out of it. How's your wife doing? Well, right. what about how am I doing? But well, children we're supposed to be stoic and <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And children are often called the forgotten mourners. And we've even had families come through our programs over the years where the grandparents will say, you know, don't talk about your sibling with your parents, you know, that'll make them too upset. Well, kids get these messages. I can't talk about it. I'll upset the people around me, so they keep it in. Well, if you internalize your grief, that's where headaches can come and sleep anxiety and tummy aches and and anger outbursts and overactivity. I mean, there's so many grief signs with Mm -hmm. kids depending on their age. So we thought, if we have this outlet for our grief, but she doesn't, where can we find one for her? And sadly, we looked, and the closest place with grief centers for kids and their families was Harrisburg, um, Highmark Caring Place. Mm -hmm. It's in Lemoyne. And then there's Olivia's House, which was in York and now has a second location in Hanover. And those were the closest to our area. And so we went to Harrisburg, which was the closest. For people outside the area, looking at two to three hour round trips for any of these places. Now, we were blessed. We were both high school teachers. You know, we had a good schedule that allowed us to get to Harrisburg by six. And yes, they provided dinner, which was nice. But, you know, we thought, this is a great program. But what about families to our west? You know, we're in Shippensburg. What about families in Chambersburg and Waynesboro and Greencastle and down to the state line? Where are they going for these services? So after we went through the program at Highmark Caring Place, I said to one of the directors, I said, "Um, can we beg, borrow, and steal your ideas? Because we've really found our niche. Like, this is what we need to provide to families in our area. And they said, Beg, borrow, and steal all you want. You guys are in a black hole for children's grief services. How long after his passing were you able to kind of pick up the pieces of your life and, you know, get into this mode of 
moving forward and making positive change? I returned to work a few days after he would have turned four. So our accident was in June. I returned to work November 4th. Um, and As a teacher? As a teacher, mm-hmm. yep. I was a teacher at Chambersburg Senior High School. And regrettably, that's when we also started a series of miscarriages. So we had over the next year or so, we had three miscarriages before eventually uh, being blessed with our our second son. Um, So I think I got back into things pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't the same person. I wasn't the same teacher. I wasn't the same friend. I wasn't the same mom. Um, But the brief parent support group really helped us keep taking one foot in front of the other and the relationships that we formed with fellow grievers. Um, I, I know, you know, everybody would always say to me, oh, you're such a strong person. And I, I used to fervently pray, please, God, don't let anything happen to my children to show me how strong I can be. Right. So after Drew's death, I went right. through a hard time there. I had some difficult conversations and especially with, with the multiple miscarriages. But um, I think just we had such great support from the community immediately, mm-hmm. from our family, from our friends, from our church family, and there's a lot of grievers that don't have that. Yeah. So I think all the things were in place, we call it our grief toolbox, was stocked much better than some. And I think that allowed us to hit the ground running very quickly. We actually had our first Drew's Hope program by the fall of 2008. So within two years, we were starting to offer that type of programming. Mm-hmm. And we've really never looked back. I mean, it's continued to be full steam ahead. And and a lot of the grievers that come to us do not have those supports in place. And I think the fact that we can help them because of the support we initially received is just a super huge blessing to this entire area. you're paying it forward in a big way. exactly. One of the things I found in my research is the feeling of being alone, that people feel... Talk about that. You know, when someone suffers a loss, that feeling of being alone, what does it mean? And how do people kind of walk their way out of it into help? Grief is extremely isolating. And that's where, even though we, I previously said, you know, you can't really should on a griever, you, you can't tell them what they should or shouldn't do, but you can help find them resources. Mm-hmm. You can offer to attend a support group with them. So I think if somebody's feeling very alone. I know in my case, I turned to books right away because I needed to figure out how did other grievers do it? How do they do this? That was a coping strategy I had. Um, My husband had a different strategy. He would seek out grieving dads for one-on-one coffees. But that was us as grievers reaching out for hands that were waiting for us. Right, right. Um, And I think the concern that I would have would come when a person doesn't take any action at all to try to help themselves move forward. And I get why they don't. Your entire world has crashed down. Right. You feel very alone. You feel that there's absolutely nobody on this earth that can understand what you're going through. And really, in a way, they can't. No, they can't. You know, it was your very individual loss. But there are often, there's often at least one hand that's reaching out. To help you, there's often one program, and if it's not something we offer, on our website, drewmichaeltaylor.org, we have a resources tab, and under that tab, 
There's not only our resources, but the multiple resources that our area has. There are other support groups. There are other support programs. A lot of our local churches offer grief support as well. Really, I would just suggest as a griever, when you're ready and when you realize that lonely just isn't the only place you can be, mm-hmm. you want to engage, you want to get back out there, I'd say you know, seek that support. There's lots of hands that want to help you up or help you forward, but it's a matter of sometimes finding the energy to reach out for it. And that can take longer than a lot of people think. Right. Um, they even say um, there's an idea that there's an acute grief stage, and that's the first four to six months. And as you start to crawl out of that first four to six months, um, that's sometimes where grievers are in a better spot to reach out for help. Personally, my husband and I attended our first support group within weeks after our son's death. That was just where we needed to be. So again, it just depends on the person. Um, But there's lots of podcasts, like the one you're listening to today. There are pure grief-related podcasts out there if you really don't want to get out of your house just yet. Um, But there was a lesson to be learned. One of my bereaved moms said, in the beginning of my journey, after my daughter died, she said, there were friends that wanted me to come out with them. And they'd call and they'd call and they'd say, come out with us. And she said, I just didn't want to be anywhere but curled up in a fetal position on my daughter's bed. Right. She said, eight, nine months down the line, I was ready to go out and they weren't calling anymore. Interesting. She said, their patience with me did not last as long as my grief. Mm-hmm. So again, that's where I say, okay, now you are the griever that needs to advocate for yourself. People often do want to help, that, but they don't know That's a powerful idea. You just advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very powerful idea, you know, especially if you're in that, as my reading showed, there's a fatigue that kicks in, and normalcy has been destroyed. And But advocating for yourself like you and your husband did, which brings up another question, the effects on a marriage, the loss of a child. Can you discuss kind of what happens there. So after um, Drew passed away and we started the foundation and after our son, our next son was born, um, I actually went back to school and I studied a field called thanatology. And thanatology is end of life and bereavement. And I got a certification from Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. And my professor there talked a lot about the different complications that come up on the grief journey. And he brought about, there's a very common statistic that's often quoted that says 80% of all marriages end after the death of a child. Mm -hmm. And he actually said that's not quite true in his opinion. He thinks that because the divorce rate is already quite high, that it's more the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. That usually there's problems in a marriage, but this loss of a child is just something that couples cannot overcome. The one thing that was keeping them together... Exactly. And then that that's no longer there. So um, I think communication is a huge thing. But I think that the one thing that we talk to grievers a lot about is that there's different types of grieving styles. And if you can understand and allow for those different types of grieving styles within your family unit, the entire family can come out stronger. So whether it's a bereaved couple, you know, a bereaved parents couple, or whether it's the death of a spouse or the death of you know, a cousin or whatever the death is, if within the family dynamic, you can understand that there are different grieving styles at play and not everybody's going to grieve the same, that can help with relationships. So 
the two main styles we often talk about are intuitive grief and instrumental grief. And they are gender related. They're not gender determined. And so the intuitive griever, I would say, you know, that's my grieving style. It's very emotional. It's wearing the heart on the sleeve. It's very out projecting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You see it. You you see it. It's just okay, I'm I'm crying. Yes, that's grief. I'm upset. Yes, that's grief. But then there's a very different grieving style called instrumental grief. And it's often the very quiet grieving style. The I can't or won't cry. I internalize my feelings. I don't really reach out for support. But I I am grieving in my own way. And many people are a combination of the two. But mm-hmm. of course, just like anything, you're going to have outliers. Some are one to one extreme, some are to the other extreme. But it's often related to your personality style. So the problem is, if you're in a family dynamic where there's a very intuitive style and a very instrumental style, and you can't allow that of each other because you don't understand it, and you accuse and you say, well, you're not grieving, and you didn't gr- love them yeah. enough, that where the problem I was just going to bring that up, up that, that the judging of someone else's grieving you know I lost my mother years ago and I have to say I'm I'm the internalizer I'm the one that's standing there at her memorial service and I'm just dead faced and it worried me you know or people looking at me like why isn't he doing this or why isn't he doing that and so that judgment you know I guess that's something people have to set aside yeah and that that's a tough one because They'll look at other people and say, well, they're not grieving right. Mm -hmm. Well, what is grieving right? Right. If you have different grieving styles, there's not really a right or a wrong. There just is. And grief is just, it's a tough thing. Mm -hmm. And so my husband and I were blessed. You know, you go back to how did our marriage survive it? Well, we were just very blessed that we could communicate well with each other. And again, we had a very good support system. Uh, we'd been married for a long time, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you know it helps now. We're you know over twenty years in, and and we just we understand each other, and we understand what we need in our own grief journey, and we still continue to do some things differently. Mm-hmm. I'm very much at the forefront of the foundation with facilitating the support groups and leading the workshops and giving the church sermons and things like that, and my husband's very much the quieter type and all that. He's the uh, goal-oriented and, you know, here's the board meeting and he does the planning and the outlining and things like that. We're very different in that, but it works for us and we're lucky it does. You talked in a talk you gave, you mentioned this concept of you were hanging on to a life raft and it was at a time when your daughter needed you. Can you talk about that a little bit about, you know, Early on in the process, when you're going through your own pain, and you know now you got a your daughter who needs you, but you kind of can't get there. Right, I'm, grief is absolutely exhausting, and yeah, I've often compared the beginnings of my grief journey. It was like I was in the middle of a very very rough ocean, holding on to a life raft. And I only had enough energy to hold on to the life raft. I couldn't pull my husband on it. I couldn't pull my daughter on it. And it really took a village to get us through that time when people would call and say, can we take your daughter to the movies? Can we take your daughter camping? Can we take her to the demolition derby? And I'd say, yes, please do these things because I really didn't have the energy to give to anyone else because it was all I could do 
to survive each day mm-hmm. without my child. I mean, you they say you get your heart ripped out. You don't just get your heart ripped out. It was like I was a hollow shell. I really can't describe the feeling. And I, I always say I hope that no one has to know right. the feeling to be able to show compassion for a griever because it's that bad. Um, it was like every part of me had been ripped out. Mm-hmm. Bit by bit, it came back. It's still not complete. Our uh, logo at the grief center is a broken heart with a Band-Aid over it, and it has a butterfly coming out of the crack in the heart. And we actually do an activity in our programs called the Broken Heart Activity. You start with a heart on a white piece of poster board, and then we cut it into the number of pieces as there are group members. And we ask each group member, decorate your piece of the heart to represent your loved one, and then share it with the group. And after they share, they basically have all these puzzle pieces, and we say, okay, now put it back together. And they try, and it can take a long time to get that heart back together. But as a group, they figure it out. They put it back together. And then instead of tape, we use Band-Aids. So they Band-Aid it back together. And then we reflect on how does the heart look. Now that we put it all back together with Band-Aids, is it perfect? Mm -hmm. No. It's always going to have cracks in it. But it can still function, and it can still work, and it looks like a heart. And that's pretty good. And that's as good as we're probably going to get it. Right. But out of that brokenness, we've, we ask them on each Band-Aid to write a support in their life that's going to help them along their journey. And we will see words like, you know, parents, faith, um, family. Often they'll write Drew's Hope, which is great. Um, my teachers, my friends, you know, whatever it is that they find to support them. So we say with that support, you know, this beautiful hope and our symbol for uh, hope on the grief journey is a butterfly. So out of that, those cracks can come this beautiful butterfly, you know, this transformative symbol Mm -hmm. of new life. Um, But it's never going to be perfect again. Mm -hmm. How important it sounds, you know, you're reflecting back now on your grieving process and for someone who's going through it for the first time, how important is awareness of where you are in the grieving process? The problem with the grieving process is it's not linear. You make all these forward steps and then right. you get tossed backwards and you're like, where did that just come from? And it's a really confusing time. But again, that's where I'll go out to, of course, I mean, this is what we believe and this is what we do, the importance of creating relationships with fellow grievers. Because when you do take those tumbles backward, they're going to catch you. They're not going to judge you. They're going to just meet you where you're at. And they can often say, yeah, I've been there too. Here's maybe what worked for me. So we can say, here's what worked for me. It may or may not work for you. Um, But they will catch you, and they will help you move forward. And I think that's just, again, it's a beautiful thing to watch those relationships help sustain Mm -hmm. and move forward. Mm -hmm. You were talking about uh, some art programs you use. Our most popular group currently is our daytime group. It's called The Perfect Blend. It meets every Wednesday morning from 10 to noon at our grief center in Shippensburg. And... It's called The Perfect Blend, Coffee Crafting and Conversation. So people are welcome to bring their own crafts. 
or we have a whole closet full of craft supplies. We will teach grievers how to knit if they want to learn how, because there's a lot of positive mental health benefits associated with knitting. Associated with knitting. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And um, but the same could be said for crocheting and painting and and the many different things. So engaging the left brain. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a painter. I'm an artist. There so you go. I'm all left brain. Okay. Well, that that is exactly what we do. Um, but yeah, we find that as we sit and as we create, and we'll teach. We've taught different things like card making, crafts, and um, just a lot of different things. But we can just sit and we can craft. And I think it takes your focus, even if it's just for a little while off of maybe all the problems in your life and all the complexities of the grief, and they let you just put that energy into something else, even if it's only for a short period of time. We actually find the same effect when we bring therapy dogs to some of our grief programs. I was going to ask about that. I saw the dog in the video. Let's talk about that. Sure. We have a couple from here in Chambersburg, Lenny and Sharon Carball, who bring their beautiful dogs. through Therapy Dogs International, they bring these dogs to our Drew's Hope program. The kids, and even the adults, they just respond really well because it's a bit of a distraction. And I think when you can have just something, again, to take your mind off the heaviness of grief, Mm -hmm. it's a welcomed thing. So whether it's the dogs or whether it's arts and crafts, it's just something to take the focus off of all the problems of the world mm-hmm. and let you channel it into something positive and hopeful and in the case of dogs very cuddly uh, they're wonderful but we actually in our kids groups uh, we have a game called doggone grief and <laughs> clever the dog yeah, the handler will play the game with the kids we even have a book about um children's grief taught um told from a dog's perspective okay so then again it would be you know um Fluffy is sad when this happens. What makes, you know, when do you feel sad? And the kids can answer or the dog's handler can answer as if he were talking about, you know, the dog. Or in the dog gone grief game, it might say, um, Fido gets mad when Fluffy steals his toy. What are some things that make you mad? And really, it gives kids a chance to really put words to their feelings. It gives them a chance to sort of explore and process their grief. But in, again, not that really deep, heavy, let's talk about it kind of way. It's a game. So it's It's indirect with children, it sounds like, what works best. When you're listening to these stories, is it ever kind of re-traumatizing to you to hear loss and suffering? You'd think it would be, but I think because we've been doing this now for so long, um, it's not as much. Here and there, if a situation is too close to our type of loss or the child is very close in age to Drew's age or, um, I mean, I'll still, some days I am reduced to tears. It gets Mm -hmm. raw. But I find I can bounce back a lot quicker than I would have been able to at the beginning of my grief journey. Mm -hmm. I think I take an awful lot of energy from the work we do with grievers, and then I can use that energy to keep moving me forward. In the beginning, I didn't have an energy reserve, and I just couldn't pull a ton from others either. Um, But 
today I get energized by being able to help these families. Mm -hmm. Um, The times that really throw me back, and every once in a while I will go there because I think it's important to remember how bad the beginning was. I have a journal that I kept in the first few months after Drew's death. Um, It was recommended by one of the social workers at the hospital, keep a daily journal. You can even see where the tear marks are. And I'm saying, you know, the why, 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 I miss you so much. And sometimes I'll take that notebook out and I'll read it just to take me back to that place so I can connect better with my our grievers. But that's hard and I will be in a funk usually for at least a day um, just ruminating on how bad it was. Mm-hmm. Um Certain days, again, throw me back. And I can't be available to grievers often on my kid's birthday or on the anniversary of his death. We usually choose family time. But the past couple years, we've actually done something pretty neat. On Drew's birthday itself, which is November 1st, which is All Saints Day, um, when the movie Coco came out, Mm -hmm. that's related to the All Saints Day celebration. And I used to be a Spanish teacher. So we t- I used to teach, even after Drew died, I would teach about All Saints Day. And the concept is on November 1st, All Saints Day, it's the day that the souls of the departed children come back okay. to visit. And on All Souls Day, which is November 2nd, the souls of the departed adults come back to visit. So in Mexican culture, that's considered Day of the Dead. Even though it spans over several days, it's considered one day. So um, we had a special potluck lunch with our Perfect Blend group where everybody was asked to bring in a favorite food of their loved one. Just like on Day of the Dead, people would put their loved one's favorite food on the altar. So we got what to share Drew's? the food. M&M's nice. and chicken nuggets. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> but on those days, I actually always bring my grandmother into the mix too. Okay. Um, my paternal grandma used to make the greatest stuffing in the world. So every holiday... I make her stuffing. It just has to be there. Right. It's a potato bread stuffing all combined, and, and it's incredible. But around his birthday, we did this potluck, and then in, um, a few years we've done a butterfly birthday party where all of the people in our programs are invited to come celebrate their loved one's birthdays. But on Drew's Day, you know, on oh, November cool. 1st, um, And we do different butterfly-related activities. We have a collective birthday cake. We sing happy birthday to our loved ones, and we insert their, you know, the various names. And that's just been a really positive way to work through what could really be a time of year where I would go into my own personal funk, so to speak. Um, But again, as a griever, when you can advocate and say, here's what I need to keep me moving – And sometimes it's I need to step away and have my own personal pity party. And that's okay because that sometimes gives you the energy you need to move forward and help others and those types of things. Yeah, you you cycle in and out of your grief. Is the why question the hardest one to get around? That's the one that will never be answered. But, you know, my personal— Should the question even be asked? (laughs) I don't think you can block it. There's just things that come into your mind and you can't block it. But I remember after Drew died, um, some family members were talking about, well, if this and if that and why. And my husband said, stop. Yeah. We're not doing it. It's a pointless exercise. Um, We're not. Yeah. It's not going to move us forward. It's not going to get us anywhere. And I remember my professor saying the answer to the why is because everything that had to happen in the history of this universe to bring us to the events that led up to that death happened. 
He said, so if you want to why it, keep going back. You can do the whys all the way up to the very second you were born. Right. Because if your mom could have just held off another five minutes, the whole trajectory of life could have changed. And so he said, you, you can't why it. And I figure, you know, my personal faith tells me by the time I could why it, I'm running past the gates and into my kids' arms. So at the point I could ever ask the question, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be a moot point. It won't matter anymore. Right. Um, so I just... What do you tell grievers who are kind of mired in why? And sort of those same types of things. I'm like, you you can do that. And I don't think you can always tell your brain to shut off that why. Mm-hmm. But at what end? Like, what benefit will this have to you to continue ruminating on the why? Go out and find the why. As you live a great life and as you carry that loved one with you, maybe you're going to find that why. And so many of our grievers have found it. Um, it just sort of happens naturally on their journey that they say, okay, well, my son died of overdose. I'm going to make a difference for other families who are either grieving this loss or other people who are in the active throes of addiction. And I'm going to do something positive to help, you know, maybe local charities that help with that. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm going to create a scholarship in this person's name, and I'm going to do fundraisers to fund that scholarship. So I will allow another child to go to college and have books paid Mm -hmm. for and things because my son died. Now, is that ever the true why that always happened? We'll never know. Right. Well, it's an unanswerable question. They're unanswerable. So as you live a great life and you move forward and you carry that loved one with you, the whys, at least... Me personally, in my mind, the whys have sort of answered themselves because, you know, without his death, I would not have met the amazing grievers that I've met along this path. I will look at all of them, though, and say, especially a bereaved parents group, I'll say, this is the club nobody wants to join. And I wish I didn't have to know any of you for the reason we've met. But because we're all here, thank you Mm -hmm. for being here. Thank you for having the courage to step in these doors. Thank you for being willing to share your worst pain with me and others so we can learn together how to do this grief journey thing in a healing, hopeful way. It sounds like, from what you're telling me, that staying in motion, physically, spiritually, uh, metaphysically, is one of the biggest components. That getting stuck is where the real problems can be created. Does that sound about right? I'd agree. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's it's hard because I remember in the beginning, the very day after Drew died, I was stuck in the hospital. I was seriously injured in the accident. And I remember looking out the hospital window and the sun was shining and people were going to work and getting in their cars. And I wanted to just scream, don't you understand my son's dead? How can this life continue? How can the world keep going on? And I think at that time, I really probably would have chosen almost to be stuck because you feel like any forward progress you make is taking you farther from the life that you knew with your person in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember about, a, I think it was a year after he died, um, neighbors were moving. And so there was a farewell party at a dear friend's house. And I found myself in tears in a heap in her bathroom sobbing, just sobbing. And she came up and she said, you know, what's going on? How can I help? I said, things keep changing. 
They can't keep changing because I felt like every change took me farther from the life that I knew with my son in it. So I get why people want to stay stuck. But my benefit of being 13 years into my grief journey, I reflect back and I think, wow, I'm so glad I didn't stay stuck because of the people I've met on the way, because of the experiences I've had, because again, I I just feel like I'm carrying my kid with me and allowing his impact on this world to still make a difference long after his physical existence on it. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that for every griever, they could find a way to become unstuck Mm -hmm. and move forward. And going back to your daughter, how is she doing today these days? I mean, how does she reflect on the loss? She's actually very involved in our grief support programs. Oh, great. She's one of our group facilitators, being mm-hmm. a tremendous role model for other grieving kids because, again, she gets it. And um, her co-facilitator is another young man who is grieving the death of his father. And I think they're just a powerful testament to using your pain in a beneficial way to help others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. And I think one of the things, you know, coming out of this, you know, the takeaways I think for people would be the shoulda or, you know, those those proclamations of what you're supposed to be doing, that there's nothing you're supposed to be doing. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, you got to figure it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're happy to, to help in any way we can. Um, we have a grief and loss lending library at our facility. We have, again, a lot of different educational workshops and things. Um, but we are more than happy to sit with grievers and try to help find them the right resources, whether it's one of our programs or one of the other programs available locally. We will do you know everything we can to help them through, especially with the holidays coming up. We have special brochures about grief during the holiday season. They're welcome to come into our facility to create remembrance ornaments. Um, you know, whatever helps them, we will try to help them find a positive coping way to deal with the grief they're experiencing. Okay, that's great. Well, that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you uh, for the work you're doing. Uh, Like you said, it's a club nobody wants to belong to, but you're the president and you're doing a great job. So if you want to give out your website maybe one more time so people can uh, reach out if they need to. Sure, it's www.drewmichaeltaylor.org. Okay, great. Thank you for being with us today, Marcy. Thanks, Marcy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Pete, this is our first show from our new location. We made a move this month um, to the Coil Free Library. The brand new Coil Free Library? <laughs> yeah, the newly renovated library. We're down in the auditorium in a great quiet studio space for us. And this is the only show we're going to have uh, in December, but we will be back to our regular schedule in the new year. And we're going to be talking to Uh, some people from the library here to find out the programs they have to offer and other things about the library. So look for that early next year, and uh, happy holidays to everyone. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being on.